Uh, you know, throughout the scriptures, uh, we are called as God's people to worship. Uh, in the Old Testament, David writes, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Elsewhere, the psalmist says, um, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout to the rock of our salvation. Let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And then in the New Testament, Jesus declares, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, as most of us in the room probably realize, worship is one of those words that uh, we in the church use a lot. Uh, and I'd venture to say we would all agree that we should do it. But why? Why exactly? Well, as you've already heard, today we're starting a series in which we're going to explore the question of why. why. Why we as Christians, why we as a church do some of the things that we do, because I'm not sure we always know. And uh, I'd like to begin this morning by talking about this whole idea of worship. Uh, my daughter Megan, who is my oldest, uh, when she was born, it was like she came out of the womb talking and asking questions. I mean, she started talking at a very, very early age, and one of her first words was, What? You know, she'd point to something and she'd say, she'd say, what? Um, she'd say, you know, what? I'd say, that's a light. And, you know, they were fairly easy, they're observational questions, relatively easy to answer, and she, I think she took my answers, you know, was satisfied with them. She said, what? That's a light. What? That's a dog. What? That's a tree. What? That's a chair. And uh, she was good with the answer. However, when she started asking why, that, that's when things got a little dicey because uh, the question of why is much more probing. It's more, it's more philosophical. She'd say, what? And I'd say, light. Why? How do you answer that? You know, I realize many of us, when we, if and when we ever think about and imagine having children, we say, man, I'm always going to answer my kids' questions no matter what they ask. But in my, uh, my parental experience, that's not necessarily easy. It's like when the kids want to go outside. Why, why can't we go outside today? Because it's raining. Well, why? Because you go out, you're going to get wet. But why? Because there's water coming down out of the sky. Why? Because there are clouds up there. Well, why? Because there are, there's rain in the clouds. Why? Because of evaporation, condensation, precipitation. Why? I'm like, oh man, I don't know. Here's a cookie. Go ask your mother. Right? <laughs> Explaining the why behind something isn't always easy, but if it's possible to answer the question, we should, because it's probably important. So here it is. Why worship? First things first, let's define the term, because depending on who you're talking to, uh, worship can refer to any number of things. It can refer to singing, uh, music, uh, prayer, dancing, giving. It can refer to silence. It can refer to shouting. Uh, it can refer to certain liturgies, certain styles of service. Uh, services, people have attributed all kinds of definitions to the word. But what does the biblical term actually mean? Well, the Hebrew term that we translate worship literally means to bow down toward, uh, to pay homage to someone and humbly acknowledge their greatness over you, which is exactly what uh, the psalmist is saying. That's what's reflected when, he, when the psalmist writes, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. In the New Testament, the Greek term for worship <clears throat> literally means to kiss the ground, specifically to kiss the ground before a superior. So it too represents a humble recognition and a humble reverence paid to someone or something of, of superior value. And then our word worship is essentially a, a shortened version of an old English term, worth-ship, meaning to, to proclaim and to give and or to give a something or someone what that object or what that person 
is worthy of, to ascribe their worthship. So if I could synthesize all that, I'd say, here's my Reiki definition. To worship means to see and to really understand what something or someone is truly worth and to give that object or that person what they're worth. Ascribe their worship. So that being the case, why do we worship God? I suggest there are three basic reasons. Uh, First and perhaps most obvious, it's implied in the definition. The reason is that God deserves it, right? I mean, if, if, if we genuinely understand him to be the sovereign creator of all things in the universe, all things, including us, Uh, then the reality of his divine power, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, all the omnis, along with wisdom and justice and holiness and righteousness, in other words, his superior otherliness is worthy of our humble reverence, our adoration, our gratitude, and our praise. But it's not just God's power that prompts our worship. It's also his beauty. I mean, if we know him to be by nature filled with, with, with goodness and mercy and love and, and, and grace and patience and generosity, then the praise he deserves will come easily to us because all beautiful things deserve praise. And we give uh, praise to things every single day. We do. And we tend to treat those beautiful things and those valuable things differently. For example, imagine you, uh, you go to an estate sale and uh, you see this painting lying there with all the other stuff that you, you kind of like. You don't, really, you don't know why you like it. You just kind of like it. So you think, I'll buy that. You buy it for a couple bucks. You take it home. You throw it in the garage until you figure out where you want to hang it. And so it sits there for a while. You basically ignore it. It sits there getting dusty and a little dirty and bumped and shoved around. And then finally, after a while, maybe a few weeks, maybe months, maybe a couple of years, finally you say, I'm going to throw this thing out. I'm never going to, I'm never going to, I'm never going to hang it anywhere. And as you're tossing it out, the frame uh, splits open, revealing the signature of the artist on the back. Someone who has their own Wikipedia page. So they must be important, right? And so you say, oh man, look at this. So you, you take it and you get it appraised and you discover that it's worth thousands and thousands of dollars. Well, immediately your appreciation for that painting increases, right? Things are now different. Your attitude changes. You're in awe of it. You're, you're, you admire it like never before. Your, your behavior and your treatment of the painting changes. You don't, you don't just casually toss it in the garage. No, no, no. You invest in it. You, you, you insure it. You hang it in a prominent location. You, you revere it for its unique, its unique beauty and value. Let's face it, when we see the true value and worth of something, it changes, it changes our thinking, it changes our attitude and our behavior towards that thing, right? It does. Well, the worship of God is similar. Similar to that which we do every single day with things in life that we see as beautiful and valuable. The difference being is that uh, to worship God is to take this dynamic applied to the, pa- the, to the painting and instead of assigning to God high value, we assign to him ultimate value. Ultimate value. Which makes sense. Because if he is who you say you believe he is, creator of all things, how can you treat him any less? How could you treat him any less? How could you just casually ignore him or toss him to the side of your life? You won't, you can't. So make no mistake, seeing and understand who God really is brings about tremendous uh, transformation in how we think, how we behave, and how we live. It's like in the Old Testament 
when Isaiah walked into the temple one day, and it was like all of a sudden, for, perhaps for the first time, he grasped the greatness and, 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 and the worthiness of God, and he just humbles himself before the Lord. And God says to him, uh, Isaiah, I've got a job for you to do. I want you to go uh, talk to a whole bunch of people who are never going to listen to you. And Isaiah says, okay, I'll do it. Why would he respond that way so immediately? I'll tell you why. Because when you really see the worthiness of God, his power, his beauty, his value, not to mention recognizing all that he's done for you, to offer him anything less than everything is an offense to all that's rational. It's an offense to all that's uh, decent. In the New Testament, Stephen was a leader in the church. He was a deacon. And he, as he was about to be put to death for his faith, he was the first martyr in the church. He was surrounded by his enemies. I don't know if you remember the story. He's surrounded by his enemies. They're ready to kill him. And what does he do? He, he, he looks toward heaven and lifts his arms. He looks toward heaven and he acknowledges the glory of God. And he says, I see, I see Jesus, the son of man, standing at the right hand of the father. What was he doing? He was worshiping. In that moment, facing the persecution, facing pain, facing death, Stephen experienced remarkable courage and he worshiped God because, because, he, because he had this sense of spiritual reality. He had a sense of, uh, sense of proportion. He recognized how he was nothing compared to the greatness of God and his life and everything in it was insignificant compared to the life he was promised in eternity. Do we have that sense of proportion? That sense of reality. Back when I was in grad school, <clears throat> I had a friend, his name was Frank, and um, we, did a lot, we had a lot of classes together. And uh, while we were in grad school, he and his wife got pregnant and had a, had a child, had a little girl. And uh, a while after they had given birth to, the, to their daughter, um, we went over to their apartment one time for dinner. And we're sitting there in their apartment at a table. It's all, you know, all kinds of really good food. It's going to be a great, great meal. And I look over and I notice the high chair is empty. <clears throat> their daughter was a real crawler. For, and I, I saw it was empty. We're about ready. I look down and there's the, the, their little daughter eating dog food out of the dog dish. <laughs> and I was, I was bugging out, man. I'm like, oh my gosh, Frank, 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 look what, look what she's doing. Look at and he says, oh, she just does that. And I'm thinking, why does she do that? That is, that is nasty. Um, but looking back, I realize why. Because as a little child, she didn't really know any different. As a little child, she didn't know what she was missing at her father's table. My son, Corey, who I don't think ever ate dog food. If he did, I'd have to give him up. But, uh, you know, uh, my son, Corey, when he was little, <clears throat> he had this he had this blanket that he loved, this tattered, multicolored little blanket. And he, 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 he couldn't say blanket, so he called it Badabada. He loved Badabada, Badabada, Badabada. I mean, he loved this blanket. He couldn't go anywhere without it, had to be with him, had to go to bed with it, Badabada. And um, I tell you, if someone went to Corey and said to him, hey, Corey, you know, I will trade you that blanket for a three-bedroom condo in Chicago with a lake view. He would have said, no. <laughs> Why? Because he was a goofy little kid with no sense of proportion. All he knew was the warm feeling he got when he wrapped up in that tattered blanket. 
which for him was more real and more valuable than the abstract yet far greater value that condo would mean to his life if he, had, if he owned it. He was a child, a little child, with no sense of proportion. Where are we, on, where are we at on, in regard to this proportion thing? You know, how do, how do you see yourself compared to God? How do you think God sees you? How does he see me? To be honest about it, I think that um, God sees us as immature children who treat our time and our energy and our attention and our money like old blankets that we desperately cling to and are willing to give up because like little kids, we have no sense of true proportion. And maybe it's time, maybe it's time for us in the church to grow up, to stop eating out of the dog dish and worship God our Father who is worthy, who deserves it, and who has so many good things in store for us. Maybe it's time. Why else do we worship? Well, second reason, God seeks it. How do we know? Well, we know from a, uh, from a number of different ways, but one in particular is, is, uh, has to do with Jesus. He was, he, uh, he, he one, one day he had this conversation with a, a woman in Samaria. Now, that was unusual because Jewish people and, and Samaritans hated each other. They didn't hang out together, they didn't talk, but Jesus was different. So he's walking through Samaria one day and he encounters this woman at a well. She's getting water and he strikes up a conversation with her. And they talk about a number of things. Uh, and at one point, they talk about worshiping God. And she says to him, you know, we Samaritans, we worship here on Mount Gerizim, on this mountain. But you Jewish people claim we have to worship on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. What's up with that, Jesus? And do you remember the story? Do you remember what he said to her? He said, believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. The kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now, some people are really bothered by that statement. They're bothered by it. They're bothered by that whole idea that God seeks worshipers. Because for them, they're thinking, well, really? I mean, that does, doesn't that seem a little narcissistic? That he would seek worshipers? If you meet a human being who demands praise, what do you do? You find them annoying. Right? You find them annoying. The person who says, look at me, admire me, adore me, praise me. Who wants to be around somebody like that? No one. And therefore, isn't the idea of God seeking worshipers a little, mis a little messed up? Isn't that below God to demand admiration and praise from us? The answer to that is no. Why? Well, some of it has to do with the nature of admiration, the nature of praise. Take admiration, for example. A Christian author and thinker, C.S. Lewis, he was an atheist and he came, comes to faith in Jesus. And early on in his faith, uh, he's studying the Psalms. And uh, he's, he's really struggling with this idea that God seeks worshipers. He calls us to worship. He wants our worship. He's really struggling with it with, for the same reasons I just mentioned, only he put it much more eloquently. Uh, Lewis said, we routinely reject those who seek and expect praise and congratulations. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, and or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. So what, what Lewis was doing, at least initially, it was he was he was he, he was taking this horizontal reality and he, he applied it vertically. And he admitted, he said, you know, a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worshipers threatened to appear in my mind. I have bad attitude, kind of. 
But the more he thought about it, the more Lewis realized that any truly admirable object deserves and really demands admiration. In the sense that, he said, in the sense that admiration is the correct, the appropriate, the adequate response to it. And he said, and failing, failing to admire the object means, when his words, we're stupid, insensible, and great losers because we have missed something special. In other words, if God is, a, is admirable, he deserves admiration. That only makes sense. When it comes to the nature of praise, well, do this for me. Think of, think of, um, think of the most negative, critical, greedy, dour people you've ever met. And then tell me, what's the common characteristic of those individuals? I'll tell you what it is. They rarely praise anything. They don't, for whatever reason. They're bored, they're apathetic, critical, and just miserable. And they, they always focus on the negative. One little thing that they don't like ruins everything. Everything's ruined. One little thing they don't like about the movie, the movie's ruined. One little thing they don't like about the novel, the novel's ruined. One little thing they don't like about your relationship, your relationship is ruined. Any, one little thing they don't like about the church, the church relationship is ruined. And sadly, these kind of individuals find very little, if anything, to praise. Who wants to be around that? However, consider the kind of people you most want to be around. Who are they? They're the men and women who enjoy life, who savor it, who, who find the positive, who are quick to overlook flaws, who forgive, who see the beauty in things, and who laugh and celebrate the good things of life. They readily praise. They praise objects. They praise things. They praise people. They're the kind of men and women who you want to be around and who you want around you. Well, understand, it's similar with God. I mean, God doesn't need our worship. He doesn't, he doesn't need our admiration. He doesn't need our praise, but he deserves it, and he enjoys it, and according to Jesus, he seeks it. And he alone has the right to do so. The third reason we worship is because we need it. We, as human beings, we need it. Think of it this way. To worship is to grow up. So you're, you're no longer a little kid clinging to a tattered blanket for your security. To worship is to get up, to get up from the dog dish and feast at your father's table, accepting all the good things he has for you as sons and daughters. To worship is to wake up, to wake up and become more fully human, become who God intended you to be. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament, we're told that God has set eternity in the human heart. In other words, we are created with a sense that, uh, that something greater exists beyond ourselves. Something greater exists. And so deep within each of us is, is this innate desire to worship something, to find that thing and worship it, and we all do. <laughs> we all find things to worship. We see something of great beauty, something of value, and we pursue it, we adore it, we admire it, we invest in it, we ascribe worthiness to it. It could be our possessions, our cars, our homes, our cabins, our clothes, it could be our money, it could be our careers, it could be relationships, it could even be our families. And granted, it's better to adore your family than to adore your bank account, but, but neither of those things will fulfill your greatest need to worship. They won't do it. And all the other things I mentioned, all of these things will eventually, in the end, let you down. They will. They will let you down. And worshiping any of them uh, will never free you from fear, 
or anxiety. The fact is, those things make you more worried. They stress you out more. And Jesus is saying, look, he says, the Father seeks worshipers not just because he deserves it, but even more so because we need it. We need it. It's through our genuine worship of him, our creator, that we become more fully human. We become who we're meant to be, worshipers, true worshipers. And as C.S. Lewis aptly points out in his book, it's in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. God imparts himself to us. So that's really the why of worship. And I figured since we're, since we're on the topic, we might as well talk a little bit about the, the where and when of it, which in my opinion is pretty important given the, given the extent to which we in our culture today have so compartmentalized you know, our spiritual lives. Trust me when I tell you this, a lot of people in the church today, whether they admit it or not, whether they even realize it or not, view worship as something you do here in this room on Sunday morning, one hour out of 168 hours a week. This is it. And I suggest to you what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman blows that idea completely apart. It, it has, that notion has no biblical basis. Think about the interaction. The woman says to Jesus, we Samaritans worship here in our temple, but Jewish people claim we have to worship at the temple back in Jerusalem. Which is it, Jesus? And, and what, is Jesus, what is his answer to her? He says, he says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Do you get what he was saying? He was essentially explaining to the woman how, how the place of worship is ultimately irrelevant because true worship of God must be done in keeping with his nature, which is spirit. It must be done in response to truth, truth of who God is, truth of what he's done for us. So here's my Ray K summary. According to Jesus, authentic worship is not dependent on a particular place or time. It's, it's just not. In fact, in its truest sense, worship is an everyday, moment-by-moment -moment deal. I mean, that was certainly true of the very first Christians, wasn't it? I mean, we're told in the book of Acts, and Acts is a historical record of the early church, we're told in the book of Acts that those, who, those men and women who first put their faith in Jesus responded to the love and grace of God in their lives by doing what? Worshiping. Not just one day a week and not just in one particular isolated location. We're told this. We're told these people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. All believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And get this. Every day they committed to meet together in the temple courts. Every day they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who are being saved. Now, I don't know how you see it, but, but as I read this text, it appears, to me that, it appears to me that the difference between many in the church today and those in the early church in Jerusalem is this. Where we tend to view worship as an interruption and an inconvenience to our lives and routine. The first followers of Jesus viewed regular life and routine as an interruption and inconvenience to their worship. Two vastly different things. And so, so as much as they could, 
every day in various locations. They, they worshiped God together in the temple, in their homes, and there was teaching, and there was prayer, and they had meals together, and everyone gave generously of their money and their possessions for the sake of others, and we were told with great joy in their hearts, they praised God. I mean, and look, don't get me wrong. I mean, don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting this hour together on Sunday morning isn't important. It is important. I think it's very important. In fact, I think it's critical to the rest of the week. And we should not, as the author of Hebrews puts it, forsake the assembling of ourselves together in this context, as so many readily do. However, I would also say that for the sake of the church in this country, for the sake of the church in the world, for the sake of the mission we have of bringing the good news of Jesus and the grace of God to our world, man, and for the sake of our own spiritual health and maturity, it is time that we as Christians once again embrace the reality that worship is more than locations, lyrics, and liturgy. It's about life. It's about life and how we live it every single day. And that's what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he wrote the early church. And he said, he said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, i.e., the manner in which you live is an act of worship. Or not, I suppose. So when do we do it? Every day. Where do we do it? Everywhere and anywhere. And again, since we've considered the why, the when, the where of it all, we might as well end by talking about the how. How do we worship? And I realize asking that question, you know, for many of us, our minds immediately shift to methods and music and other traditions and spiritual disciplines and liturgies and all that. And, and, but I, I, think, let, I think we should look at what Jesus says about it because while his answer to uh, the Samaritan woman's question certainly addresses matters of when and where, it seems Jesus had something more spiritually substantial in mind, specifically related to the how of worship. Think again about what he says. He says, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Twice, Jesus repeats himself. A time is coming, he says. A time is coming. Literally translated, the text reads, an hour is coming. An hour is coming, Jesus says. And if you study the book of John, what you learn is that whenever Jesus referenced his coming hour, he was referring to his death, his approaching sacrifice. Do you grasp the significance of that? Jesus was basically explaining to this woman the how of worship, indicating that it wasn't, it wasn't about this temple or that temple or that style and this style, or that music or this music or that practice and that tradition, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 it wasn't about that. Jesus was telling her, here's how you truly worship God, through me, he says. My hour is coming, he says, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna change worship forever, and he did. Making true worship possible for all of us. In what ways? Well, in a lot of ways. Uh, and there's some serious theology associated with that. But for the sake of time, let me point out, let me point out the practical side to it. Over 90% of Americans, somewhere around 92, 93% of Americans say they believe in God. But more often than not, attempts at worshiping him leaves people wanting. You know, many go to religious services and they stand, they sit, they read, they sing and everything else. And yet at the end, most exit feeling indifferent feeling maybe even a little inadequate, insecure, a little uncomfortable, spiritually nonplussed. And so some say, well, 
I went to church today, but I didn't get anything out of it. Well, that's the first problem because it wasn't for you. You realize that? That's not the point. Worship is not getting, worship is giving. If you come to get something, then you're nothing but a consumer. If you're coming to get something, then you really have no idea what worship is about. It's about giving. It's about giving to God what, what he deserves. Yet many people, other people, who genuinely long to worship and have a, have a good concept of it, still they, they struggle. They find it hard to do. They try their best to do you know, all the religious rites and rituals correctly, but still for them, God seems so, so very distant. And as a result, some just give up. You know, they just... They give up or they make excuses like, well, I'm not into organized religion or I'm not sure about a personal God. They'll say all kinds of things. But the fact is many people pull back and pull away from their attempts at worship because the more they learn of God, the more they recognize the greatness of God, the smaller they feel. As human beings, the more holy we see our creator, the more dirty we see ourselves. He's altogether good. We're not so good. He's altogether perfect. <laughs> We're unquestionably imperfect. Sinfully broken. And facing the truth of that, facing the reality, I mean, I really, I mean really facing it and accepting the reality of it can be very traumatic. It can be traumatic. It, leads to, it can lead to shame and guilt and fear and insecurity and all of our best efforts to religiously rectify the problem fail. And therefore, our attempts at worship leave us empty and spiritually disillusioned. See, it's our imperfection, it's our brokenness, it's our lack of holiness, it's our rebellion, it's our sin that inhibits our worship. It keeps us distant from God. And Jesus says, I've come, I've come to fix that problem. I've come to solve your sin problem. How? My hour through my death, through my sacrifice. He says, I, I've come to pay the penalty for, for, for sin for all of humanity, making forgiveness graciously available to anyone who wants it, thus removing the barrier and allowing true worship of God to be possible for each and every one of you, for all of us. How do we worship? Jesus says, the only way is through me, through faith in him, in fact, when we put our faith in him and we truly experience the grace and the forgiveness of God, I'll tell you what, man, our worship, our worship will, never, will never again be an empty religious act motivated by some twisted sense of works-oriented obligation. It won't be. It will never again be an interruption or an inconvenience to our schedules. No, no, no. Instead, we will worship God not because we think we have to to earn something. No, we'll worship God because we want to, because we've been given something. We've experienced his love and grace and because we're able to worship him. And every day and every way, we'll ascribe to him ultimate value and worship. Our praise will be a heartfelt response to his love and grace. Our adoration will be done with deep gratitude and great joy. Don't you see? Don't you see, those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Not those who do it out of obligation or some sense of earning their way. Mm -mm. Instead, he's looking for those who worship him because they want to in response and out of love and gratitude. Those are the worshipers the Father seeks.
So understand, sure, the, the why, the where, the when of worship are all important, but nothing matters more than the how, which is through Jesus. So what we're going to do is this morning, we're going to take some time, we're going to follow the lead of the early church, early Christians, and we're going to share communion. We're going to do it as a way to remember Jesus, to remember that it's through his hour, through his death, through his sacrifice on the cross, that we are graciously offered forgiveness of sin and life everlasting. It's because of him we worship in spirit and in truth. So we're going to sing a couple songs. And if you've, you've put your faith in Jesus, you, you're, you're a follower of his, you've made that commitment to him, then when you're ready and your heart is full of gratitude and joy, then I, I invite you, you can get up, go to one of our four, we have four tables set up for communion, go to one of those tables and receive the elements that symbolize his body and blood shed for you. But here's the thing. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, not really, You've never sincerely prayed and asked him to forgive your sins, to be the savior of your life, then you need to do that. You need to do that first, and you need to do it now. You need to do it today, before you ever get up. Because if you do, I'll tell you what, that'll make receiving of this communion your first true act of worship. And so, in the words of the psalmist, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout to the rock of our salvation. Let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Let's pray. Our Father, my hope is that um, as we begin this new year, that we'll have a deeper and better understanding of what it means to worship you, our God, creator of all things, Savior and Lord of our lives. It's not about us coming and getting. It's not about us consuming. It's not about this, that, or the other thing that we often pinpoint and, and talk about. It's, it's all about us coming and giving to you what you are worth, our adoration, our praise, our lives, all that we are. I pray that we would be that those kind of worshipers this year. And for anyone here this morning who's never sincerely asked you to forgive their sin, I pray that they would do it right now before ever getting up. They would say, Jesus, I believe. I need forgiveness. I'm imperfect as like everyone else. I, I'm broken. I need healing. Heal me. Forgive me. Be my Savior. And then as they receive communion, may they truly, for the first time, worship in spirit and truth. We offer this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you for being here this morning. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully you understand that we, we don't come here and do this because we think somehow it's going to earn us some kind of privilege in heaven. You know, and, and hopefully we don't come in here ex expecting, you know, to be given something. We come in here to worship God, to give him what he's worth. If he is the creator of all things, if he is our Lord and Savior, if he's done all these things we talk about, then he deserves everything we have. Anything less is an offense. So hopefully, hopefully this, this year we can be the, that kind, those kind of worshipers who come, not because it's an interruption, because we want to be here and we want to worship God together.
and we want to worship with him with our lives every day. So come back next week. We're going to talk a little bit more about something, some things that we do and figure out why we do and talk a little bit about it. Hopefully it's been helpful. I just want to say, you know, as we, end the, as we ended the last year and we begin this new year, maybe, maybe last year was a rough time for you and you have some anxiety uh, regarding the, the year ahead or maybe just going through some things. Uh, following the service, our, some of our prayer team folks will be down right here in the front and you can come down. They'll be happy to pray with you. Also, if you for the first time today prayed that prayer to Jesus, uh, would you somehow let me know? Shoot me a, a, an email or fill out something on, on, on your uh, uh, bulletin and give it to an usher or something. I just want to know so that I can pray for you. Because being a Christian means making a decision. And uh, hopefully you've made that today. So let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. And now, Father, as we, as we leave this place, may we go uh, and worship you with our lives this week. Worship doesn't end here, for you are worthy every day of our attention and of our love and of all, all that we are. So may we live that way in, in the midst of our world and point people to Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.